What's up, folks? It's me. It's me. Mr. Sensational Gino Vega here, coming to you with a very special episode 83 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast that is um, coming to you on the IC Robots Radio Network via a Herculean movement of Earth, Moon, and stars. Yes, folks, I doubt anyone remembers, but to the tens of ones listening, maybe some engineer nerd probably remembers. <laughs> uh, last week, I had began the episode saying there would be no episode this week. Um, the week that I'm recording this, that possibly you were listening to this. If you look at the release date, whatever the, the, the week of that release date... Um, I guess it would be July 20th, the week of July 20th. Wednesday, July 20th. I had said I wasn't going to do a podcast episode, but then by the end of last episode, episode 82, I had decided I needed to do one anyway, and that what I would do is forego my usual schedule, record it ahead of time, turn it into IC Robot so he could publish it for this week, um, and then catch up on doing a new one Um for the following week. I mean, they'd both be new. But anyway, in any case, I went from saying there wasn't going to be one to there was going to be one. But then that buffer of time when I was going to get it done ahead of time quickly evaporated and I didn't do it. So now I find myself on the day that I originally thought I wasn't going to be able to record an episode. Today, Tuesday, July 19th, I just got back last night from, it wasn't really a weekend trip. It was a weekend full of little mini trips. I went camping up near Armstrong Redwoods on uh God, when was that? That was Saturday. Saturday. Went camping. Up near Armstrong Redwoods. If you're familiar with Armstrong Redwoods, situated near the town of Guerneville in the Russian River area of Sonoma County, um, some family friends of ours have a family property that if you're on whatever the name of the road is, I can't remember the name of the road, but the road that you, you literally, the road that you drive up to get into Armstrong Redwoods, at a certain point, if you veer off to the right, they have a property there. And we will sometimes uh, be invited by them to go camping on that property. There's a little little house in, on kind of a meadow, and we camp in the meadow there. Um, and uh, uh, this past week, it was uh, the, the couple that we're friends with, uh, one half of the couple, it was her, her birthday. So we were camping out there. To celebrate her birthday. And we had a, a great old time. That was on Saturday. Then uh, yesterday, Monday, is our now 14-year-old daughter, Miss Sensational 2's birthday. And so we left camping on Sunday, came home, took a shower and stuff like that. Then we drove two hours down to Santa Cruz, California, where we went out to dinner, we spent the night, and then the next day we took, well, the whole family went to the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk in honor of Miss Two's birthday. Hung out there all day, got back last night. Here we are on Tuesday. I thought it would be too busy trying to get back into a normal schedule and, you know, get my wits back about me today to record. And I pretty much have been. But... As I mentioned last time, today's episode, once I get done with this spiel, is all going to be about tying up the story of teenage hooliganism I've been telling on the last two episodes, and I didn't want it to like go a week without the final installment and it drag out unnecessarily. So we're going to try to button that all up today. 
There's plenty of other stuff to talk about from this last weekend, from the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, etc. But we will talk about that next week. This week, we are now going to go directly into part three of the tale that I have been telling of this odyssey on which myself, my friend Jay, and my friend M embarked on in my, I guess it was my junior year of high school that that all happened. For a quick refresher, if you do not remember, um, I'm catching my breath here because I was like trying to do work underneath my car. <clears throat> and I feel like I was inhaling ill materials, a little out of breath. This is why I don't do things, I, I'm not into DIY. I would rather pay someone that knows what they're doing to do it instead. Therefore, that person makes money doing what they know how to do. I end up not having to pound my chest because I feel like I'm about to expire from whatever it was I was breathing in. And I save time, which to me is much more important than money. I know everyone's situation varies. I'm fortunate enough that, um, while I don't have money, you know, coming out of all places, there's finally at a point in our family life where with certain things, there's not as much nickel, like it's worth it to me to pay someone like 50 bucks, even maybe a hundred bucks to, to do a task that I can't really do. That's going to take me like days to do, take them like an hour to do. It's a happy trade off for me at this point in my life. Apologies to the DIYers out there, engineer nerd and such. Joe Carr out there building his own house. M- respect, but I'm not going to do that. I can't. I can't do that. I won't do that. I tried doing it today and uh, paying the price. Anyhow, and I'm still going taking the car to uh, our mechanic tomorrow anyway. So let us continue for a refresher. When last we left, I've been telling a tale of how. That group of friends that I mentioned, me, Jay, and M, had taken to driving home together after school. Jay had gotten his driver's license. He was 16 years old. I was 16 without a driver's license. M was 15. Jay had possession of his mother's silver Buick automobile, which he would use to drive first M home, then myself home, then himself home. Jay would drive himself home. And in doing this triangle, we would end up driving either across the outskirts or through a very tasteless, affluent neighborhood. Um, people with money, but people who are very boring, generic. Uh, th- th- these people were basic in today's parlance. So you know when when a basic person with a lot of money spends that money, it's not like they're they're spending money on a sm- maybe a smaller but architecturally cooler. Uh, home. They're they're spending money on as much home they can get, even if the home looks horrendous. But it's it just bigger. The bigger, the better. Quality over quantity. That was these neighborhoods that we would drive through on the way to drop M off at his home. And he did not live in a neighborhood like this, but he lived. You know, had to like go either around or through these neighborhoods to get there. As I mentioned, we took to um, trolling these neighborhoods on our way home. You can go back to listen to all these, episode 81, 82. I don't want to spend 30 minutes here recapping. But we would drive around these neighborhoods, act like idiots, and eventually it snowballed into stealing things out of people's yards, like lawn ornaments, and then eventually it snowballed into stealing mail out of mailboxes, which we're not doing thinking of that as this big, grave, 
act of criminality. That actually seemed like just kind of like some minor, oh, we took a piece of paper out of the mailbox, big whoop. Oh, but we took this statue out of the front yard. That seemed like a much bigger deal. But when last we uh, left, the three of us had been pulled over on the way home from school by a Santa Rosa police uh, car and an unmarked federal postal inspector vehicle. We were put into the back seat of the marked police car and driven to the Santa Rosa Police Department on Santa Rosa Avenue. And at this point, I honestly thought this still all had to do more with kind of the petty vandalism we'd been doing, the theft of lawn ornaments, even though the postal inspector had, I believe, introduced herself when we were first put in the police car. Uh, I, I could not wrap my head around the fact that that is what we were in trouble for. And we're going we're gonna to soon find out that that was a key component of this story. But um, in the police car, we were not ever officially told we were being arrested. We were simply taken into the police car and driven to the station. And I believe there was some intimation that the more cooperative that we were, the faster that we just kind of explained everything that had happened, the sooner we'd be released. And I was under the impression that if we played our cards right, we might even be home before any parents or anyone could no- could could uh, notice that anything was uh, amiss. They're making it sound like, you know... You're not being arrested. We just need to talk to you. Um, but they still had a, there, were, there was a grimness to these officers. Um, at first, when we started off in that marked car, we were with two just schmo cops with like cop uniforms on and everything. Uh, one I do not remember at all. The other one I remember was a typical like long suffering middle aged fat cop with a mustache. And we're driving in the back seat, and Jay, um, who's a talkative fellow in real life, um, was sort of just continuing to talk with us, act like he was not phased by what was going on, just making small talk, making small talk with the officers as we were driving. And it was hilarious because the officers would start to respond to him. You know, Jay would be like, oh, my good man, lovely weather we're having today, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is kind of, wait a minute, you're not supposed to talk. And so they kept getting mad that Jay was talking, kept trying to get him to stop talking. And we finally arrived at the station, and like I mentioned, I felt that my life was kind of coming to a close as I sat in the police car in the big, wide, open world of freedom, that world of freedom that the mutants are very uh, um, enamored of. I could do anything I wanted at any time, 281, and here I was going through a fence where I felt that I may never be able to do anything to anyone, anytime I wanted, ever again. That no longer would my rights not end where your feelings begin. I would have no rights because I would be in some sort of detention facility. So we got to the station. We were let out of the car. uh, Still not formally arrested, not handcuffed or anything. Just being led out of the parking area and into the police station itself. Along the way, we passed an individual who I guess had been doing some kind of classroom stuff um, at our high school. I, I, can't, I, I don't know if he himself was a cop or just somehow involved in the police department, but he'd been doing some kind of guest speaking in Jay's, one of Jay's classes. And so um, as this fellow passed Jay and looked incredulously at him uh, for being in custody at the police department, um, Jay was like, hi, Mr. S, because the guy's last name started with an S. And the guy's like, Jay, what are you doing here? And Jay was like, I have no idea. And so uh, Mr. S was quite confused, and we were led along. We were led into 
basically an interrogation area at the Santa Rosa Police Department. And I can't exactly remember how um, their issue with us was first presented. I do remember all three of us in an interrogation room, and it felt like we were waiting for a long time. But I think what happened was the plainclothes detective from the SRPD who was involved in the case, and then the female postal inspector introduced themselves to us and said they were going to have to be asking us questions about some complaints regarding postal theft. And then I believe they left, and we were left to cool our heels for quite some time, just the three of us, with the two uniformed cops. And when we were in there with the two uniformed cops, we were just kind of sitting there, M and myself quite uneasily, Jay without a care in the world, to the point where Jay saw a stack of coloring books and a uh, cup with some crayons in it and grabbed one of the books and was going to start coloring, at which point um, the uniform cops got very angry. And understandably so. This was, in retrospect, this was not something really to be making light of. But again, we were 15 and 16 year olds who were quite unformed, immature, and stupid. But yes, as Jay reached for the coloring books and the crayons, the uniformed cops were like, Whoa, 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 put those back! Those are for child victims of crimes! Meaning, if something bad happened to a child and they were brought to the police station to talk about it, the police officers would give them the coloring books to make them feel more comfortable in the foreboding environment. So I did, even at 16, I felt a little bad for that. I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's a bad look. We shouldn't be, shouldn't be messing with the, with the kid victims coloring books. But anyway, that, that was really the only action that happened while we were seeing with the two uniform cops. We were just sitting there in awkward silence. Um, and eventually I remember I felt like I was almost in some sort of after school special at this point. I felt I needed to say something to break the heavy, awkward silence. So for some reason, I awkwardly said to that beleaguered middle-aged fat cop with the mustache, have you ever made a really big mistake in your life? As if I was reflecting, you know, that I myself had made this big mistake in my life that had led me here. And, uh, Maybe he could relate. Maybe he had been there somewhere in his own officerly life. And he said, "Uh, you know, sadly, I can't remember if he said yes or no, but I think it was something about if you're really lucky, you might get a second chance. So we were left to kind of twist in the wind in that room for some time, all three of us. At this point, I still naively thought we would somehow possibly get out of there without our parents noticing. Because once they realized we hadn't really done what they thought we did, that the mail was not that big of a deal, that we didn't have any mail on us, you know, um, this would all kind of blow over. Because again, I was fixated on the idea that we were in trouble for vandalizing statues, running over mailboxes, setting off Piccolo Pete's, this, that, and the third, as you can listen to in the last two episodes. Since none of that was getting mentioned and they kept hammering on the mail and we hadn't kept any of the mail, I really thought we were going to get out of this. So one by one, we were finally each pulled away for an interrogation with who would become our dear friend, the plainclothes detective, Detective G of the Santa Rosa Police Department. And I honestly can't remember what order we were called away in, but I just, I obviously I know I eventually was. 
And I found myself face to face with Detective G. And Detective G, if memory serves me correctly, was kind of a fit, eh, maybe like 30s, 40s. I, it was hard, it's hard to know what his age was at the time because I was a kid, so everyone over the age of 18 seemed old to me. But had um, just a brown mustache, kind of horseshoe, balding, brown hair. Was wearing jeans with like kind of a maybe greenish polo shirt tucked into them and like white, uh, bright white shoes. And that horrible look that I can't stand that um, Jerry Seinfeld rocks with the tucked in shirt to the jeans with the big white sneakers. Ooh, it's bad. But that's what uh, Detective G was rocking. And Detective G was a very irritated, angry, disapproving man. And his exasperated um, interrogation began with me. And again, he was fixated on the mail. And he started asking me these very strange questions. He started asking me what the numbers were I had stored in my calculator. Now, I had a graphing calculator in my backpack, and they had taken all of our stuff out of the car and obviously gone through it. And there were no numbers stored in it. Um, but yeah, he kept asking me were they were these checking account numbers that I had in my calculator. Uh, I wasn't really following him, but he was very adamant that uh, this is what was happening. He wanted to know where we were keeping the checks we'd stolen, which um, we very much had not stolen checks. As I mentioned in the last episode, we had given an individual by the name of B a ride home one day, and he did in fact steal a check out of the mailbox and did in fact brag about how he could wire it to his father's bank account in the Bahamas, but we hadn't thought much of it. But this is all, this is starting to um, percolate in my mind now. Wait a minute, there was that weird guy we gave a ride home to. The inane line of questioning continued. I was wearing a t-shirt for a band by the name of Tilt. There's also an arcade somewhere in the Bay Area called Tilt, or there was at the time. And he was asking me why I was wearing a shirt from the Tilt Arcade, whether I hung out there as a gang member. I tried to insist it was a t-shirt from a band, and he was not buying it. <laughs> he wanted to know where I got the shirt. Well, when I saw them play live. Why were they selling shirts? Uh, because that's what bands do. He wanted to know about an individual whose initials were JM, who's not to be confused with any J that's been in the story so far. But JM was a skater bro that uh, we went to high school with at the time. And JM, at that point in time, was a nemesis of mine. I did an episode about this some time ago. And I know many people out there, including many of the tens of ones, tend to romanticize skateboards and skateboarding culture. But for me, when I was growing up and going to high school in the 90s, skateboarders were my jocks. Like, I didn't really know or traffic or get into conflict with, like, the more stereotypical jocks that played team sports or anything like that. But I was constantly getting into it with skater bros. Because skater bros, at least in my experience, tend to be a very uptight, orthodox breed. And unless you are dressed perfectly right, speaking the perfectly right way, accessorized with all the, the correct accoutrements, you, you are not... Um, cool enough to be seen as valid, and you were therefore seen as a target, at least you were back in the 90s. And so uh, I was often referred to by various um, slurs against gay people, 
by the Skater Bros. Um, and JM was kind of like a, a leader Skater Bro that would that would call me various slurs, you know, trip me in the hall, shove me, that kind of thing. And so I couldn't stand this guy at the time. Since uh, mended fences, and uh, he's a great guy, no, 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 no problem at this point in t- uh, today in the, in the current day. But in high school, at that moment in high school time, he was like my jock nemesis. So <clears throat> Detective G started laying in and really think about JM. Uh, what my what that I, he'd heard that I had uh, some sort of revenge plot against JM that I was I was seeking to cause JM some kind of harm. And I was like, well, come again? But what it was was when that B creep, the, the creep named B was with us and took that um, check, we that were in the car were just doing our usual thing of spouting off and mouthing off. And I think we were joking about the fact that um, we should – I can't what, – what did we think we should do? We, we thought, oh, we were, we were saying how it would be funny to – and I can't remember how we thought we would do this because it wasn't even something we were really thinking of doing. We're just mouthing off while driving around being idiots. Uh, we were saying how it'd be funny to somehow order a bunch of stuff in JM's name. I guess take something that we like, I'd steal someone's credit card out of a mailbox, find a credit card or something, and then order a bunch of stuff and just mail it to JM's address so that it made it look like he was the one that ordered it. <laughs> That's a good one. Not at all intended to be real, not at all intended to be serious, but uh, deadly serious there in that interrogation room in the Santa Rosa Police Department that day. Another strange uh, road he went down is I was in journalism class that year. It was my last period of the day. And in journalism class, we had these paint pens used for... um, It wasn't for the class, but they were in the room that we uh, had journalism class in. They were more for, like, leadership or whatever. But these big sort of circular... uh, vats of ink with a big permanent marker that would dip into them and you could use them to write those stupid banners that they would have up at like pep rallies and and such in high school and I had um, taken one of them with permission to use for an actual valid project. I can't remember why I needed it but I I checked it out of the journalism room um, all in the up and up. This wasn't even part of the teenage hijinks but it was in, I had been bringing it home from school so it was in Jay's Buick and Detective G, uh, apologies for the errant uh, text sound. Detective G at one point grabbed my hand and he was like, look at your hand. See how you can see your veins through your hand? And like when I look at the top of my hand right now, even now, uh, 30 years later almost, I can see the veins through the top of my hand, which I, I just thought was a matter of course. because He was like, see how I can see your veins through your skin? That's because you've been sniffing pens. And I was like, what? It's like, that's a side effect from sniffing pens, huffing pens, huffing pens like the one you have in the car. And I realized, again, one of the jokes we made when we were screwing around, being funny, funny guys, and that idiot B was in the car was, let's sniff these pens and get high. Not that we actually did. Again, we were just trying to be funny, funny 1990s teens. So even in my unformed, addled 16-year-old mind, I was starting to piece together that, oh my god, something must have happened with B, and he has told them literally everything that we ever said in front of him. And in the midst of this um, interrogation, I wasn't really denying stuff. 
And I was I, I was more or less answering questions truthfully because, again, I was stupidly thinking if I tell them some of this stuff, they'll eventually have to let us go and we can get home and it's still not quite dark yet and uh, my parents will never know. But uh, he, at a certain point, and, and I'm sure this is some cop guy um, interrogation uh, trick, which is like, you know what? I'm sick of these lies. I'm going to give you a chance to think about it here by, the, by yourself in this room. I'm out of here. And he just stormed out and I had to sit there for like... 45 minutes to an hour. And keep in mind, you know, I say I was trying to get out of here before my parents could find out. But keep in mind, they had these three minor kids in the police department not actually arrested, not being offered legal representation. Our parents had no idea where we were. And we'll get into more of this in just a moment as we as we wind this tale down. So I think eventually Detective G came back in and essentially did the same interrogation He'd done the first time around with generally the same responses on my part. And then I was taken out into kind of an open, like, office part of the police station outside of the interrogation rooms where I think they were making me fill out a form or, like, write down what I had said. Um, And at this point, I was pretty psychologically beaten down from all of these tactics. And so I remember... um, Detective G was speaking to the postal inspector woman, who's a very minor character in the story just because she never actually interacted with us because I think she was just like, dude, come on, this isn't real. But uh, they were kind of talking sternly to each other, and um, Detective G was like, well, you know, he's lying through his teeth. And I blurted out, I'm not lying! And he's like, not talking about you. Um, Then I realized they were talking about Jay because then they were like, I mean, he was the one driving the car, and he insists he didn't see any of this happen. So for a little context with Jay, Jay comes from a family of attorneys. So Jay was approaching the situation quite differently from M and myself, and we'll get into that a little bit more in just a second here. But eventually the three of us were rounded up and told that our parents were contacted and our parents were going to be coming to get us. So there goes my pipe dream of getting out of there without any parental notification. And Detective J basically told us that we had all committed a federal crime, which meant we were all looking at a long stint in federal prison. And as he said, you know who's in federal prison? The guys who tried to blow up the World Trade Center, because this was the original, you know, pre-9-11, but there was that other kind of other attempt, I think, to blow up the World Trade Center. So at this point, I was thinking, you know, we're either so screwed that we're dead, just dead dead boys sitting right now, or these guys are just full of crap. And so I felt a strange calmness come over me. And furthermore, we still were never actually arrested. We were given a citation to appear in court. And eventually, all three of us were picked up by some manner of parent or guardian. And it was very comical because the gradation of the three of us went something like this. Jay told the police absolutely nothing. He claimed that none of it had happened. He had seen none of it, heard none of it, knew nothing, wanted to speak to an attorney. Um, I told them as much as I thought I could without telling too much, if that makes any sense, which was still, in retrospect, too much. But uh, I tried to reasonably tell them stuff. M, I think, gave up the store. I think he told them everything. I think he told them more than everything. So when the parents came to get us, 
the way that our friend group worked is um, M's parents thought that Jay and myself were bad influences on him. So M's mom came to pick M up, and M's mom was basically mad. Why were you hanging out with them? Why did you uh, make let them make you do this? And drug him away by his ear. My parents were just mad at me, so my mom picked me up. How could you do this? And dragged me away by my ear. Jay's grandfather came to pick him up, and I saw this as I was leaving. And in my memory, his grandfather, this very tall, stately-looking man, came to pick him up wearing a full-on, like, three-piece suit. I don't know if that's true, but that's my memory. And he was like, how could your friends have said anything? (laughs) Because, you know, coming from that lawyerly background, the most important thing is we should have all just remained mute and waited to be released. So we all went home, and I remember there was a funny scene the next day at school where all three of us kind of converged on the same spot in the hall, looked at each other, didn't know what to say, and then quickly resumed back to our normal life, normal conversation. My parents were not particularly bent about the whole thing, interestingly. They were more kind of creeped out and weirded out that the police kept us detained for so long. Because we were there for hours, and it had gotten dark. My mom was just about to like start calling hospitals. Um, they fixated more on that. M's parents took it pretty rough, and he was quickly sort of shuffled away from the rest of us. I think they made him do kind of like an outward-bound type program, and he ended up going away to a, a prep school and going to college. And I actually didn't talk to him or, or speak to him for years. And within the last few years, got back in touch with him. Um, but in any case, we had to appear in court. And at the time, my dad had some connections to the local legal community. And then, of course, Jay's family did. And it turned out that the prosecuting attorney was all fired up and thought that we had committed a very serious crime and wanted to see us do some actual time. But fortunately, Jay was the first of the three of us to go before the court. Actually, no. M was the first of the three of us to go before the court. And because M was 15, his whole thing was so much different. There wasn't really a lot they could do. And they... um, the court decreed that he would do 40 hours of community service and the matter would be closed. Jay then went next with, I believe, his lawyer father representing him. And this is where, at their hearing, the prosecutor was starting to get frothed up and talk about how, you know, there needed to be some juvenile detention time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Jay's dad cited that the previous minor involved in the case had already been before the court had gotten 40 hours of community service. And the judge said, okay, well then this one will get 40 hours of community service as well. And the same thing happened to me. Um, I left the courtroom, not feeling particularly triumphant because I got very concerned. Somehow I'd heard a rumor or maybe they told, I think I had to meet with a probation officer on our way out. And he was saying, yeah, I don't know exactly what the terms of your, um, Probation is going to be if you're going to be on any, you know, um, blah, blah, blah. He's, this guy was basically the conduit for checking in that I'd completed the 40 hours. And he was very confused by the whole thing. He's like, I talked to your guidance counselor at school. They said, you're fine. No behavior problems. I, I don't understand why you're here, what this is about. Um, but I was very concerned. One of the things that he mentioned is one of the conditions that could be attached was a curfew. And at the time, I had just started getting into going to punk rock shows in Petaluma, California, at the Phoenix Theater, was kind of starting to play my own band, and I ruined, I worried this was going to ruin my life. Because if I couldn't go out at night, go to these shows, 16-year-old me, that was it. Life over. Uh, but fortunately, that never came to pass. Um, Jay, on the other hand, was felt very good when he left court. And in fact... As he got up and as he began walking out the door, 
He began reciting the lyrics to The Ghetto Boys, Damn It Feels Good to Be a Gang. So I've got to give it to Jay. He handled the situation with much more aplomb than I did. And then here's the funny thing. So in the pantheon of criminality, um, one would have to say Jay was the most egregious with the no cooperation, no talking. I was middle, and then M was the most innocent. It's just as far as how we approached the law enforcement aspect of it. And so we all had this 40 hours of community service that we had to do. M gets the absolute worst gig. He's got to do 40 hours working in a Goodwill store, like an actual store, behind a counter, dealing with belligerent customers. I get the middle gig. I worked at all places of the di- at the I worked at of all places, easy for me to say, the dig, which if you listen to any of Icy Robots content, you'll know what the dig is. And I will talk more about that at a future time because we're running out of uh, out of uh time here today, but I did end up doing my 40 hours of the dig before I knew what the dig was, before I knew who IC Robots was. So we'll talk about that in weeks to come. But it was not as bad as working at a store because I kind of got to be outside and wander around, and, but it still was not great. Jay got to work at the school district office where they loved him and they wrote him a college letter of recommendation when he was done. So he got the best gig, I got the middle gig, Poor Am got the worst gig. Um, To wrap up this story, a couple of things. I don't think we were ever told explicitly the tale of what exactly happened, why we ended up in the police station that day. I don't even remember that there were really clear charges when we went to court. It was very vague, very strange, and I think that's why the judge was just like, give these kids 40 hours of community service, get them out of my face. But I think we, we managed to, to piece together some rumor, conjecture, hearsay in the months following up and kind of piece together a story. And I, I can't remember where all of the info and the intel came from. But what happened as bad intel is that fool B that went with us that one day that took the check that said he could wire it to his father's bank account in the Bahamas. He took that check. He walked up to this kid named G at school. G was a proto-mutant. G was one of those suburban cowboys. Like, he would always wear Wrangler stuff and a big 10-gallon hat, and he he was angry about the quote-unquote gays and angry about the quote-unquote Mexicans. He was one of these disagreeable hee-haw types. Um, but B went up to this this joker, G of all people, and offered to give him, I think, like 100 bucks if he went and tried to cash the check, like, you know, a check-cashing place. And G turned right around and told the principal... And so um, B was visited at his home by Detective G and the goon squad. And when Detective G interrogated B, B gave up everything, gave up all the goods, like I thought, told him everything we ever had said in his presence, and that convinced Detective G and the goon squad that we... Because I think also Brandon was like, they, they've been doing this, they do this, they do that. I think that they believed that we were some orchestrated group actually trying to steal checks for profit, which could not be further from the truth, but that led to all kinds of confusion and chaos in the interrogation. So where are they now? You know about me. You know where me, where I, Mr. Sensational Gino V, ended up. I ended up here doing the Sensational Gino Vega podcast some 30 years later. Jay um, lives somewhere else in California now, um, is a family man, married, children, etc., upstanding individual. M, same thing, lives on the East Coast, married, kids, chill guy. Uh, 
B, who we didn't really know in high school, and then I don't know what happened to him, just kind of disappeared. B, the last I saw when I thought of him and I looked him up was in trouble for running a scam taxi service somewhere, I think maybe in the Sacramento area, could have been in the Nevada area, I can't remember, but he was running a scam taxi service. I think this was pre-Uber and all that. So once a, once a shyster, once a carny, once a con man, once a, once a bad dealer, I guess always such, and he's, he's still out there trying to fleece you for your ducats. Um, Officer G got, I think he got busted back down to uniform because I think he killed somebody, <laughs> which is kind of no surprise considering the guy was kind of a loose cannon and all over the place, not particularly professional. Um, I mean, not that I understand, you know, we, we were in the wrong, but I mean, come on now. And we were in the wrong, but to this day, Jay insists, and I now concede he is right. Had all three of us not said anything, we wouldn't have even had to do the 40 hours of community service because we probably could have gotten an attorney to get us out of that situation had, if we had waited around long enough and finally they had allowed us to have one. Um, and even that wouldn't have been a thing. But in any, in any case, uh, yeah, Detective G got busted back down to uniform and humorously when Jay graduated high school, he went to this project graduation gimmick that the school had where you got to hang out and party at the school overnight. And Officer J was the officer on duty and he kept, uh, Officer G was the off officer on duty and he kept following Jay around uh, suspiciously. I just looked up G and he is still kicking around out there. He's hilariously in the uh, is it, was it the real estate business or home mortgage? Let me see. He's in the lending business now. Should you ever want a loan officer in uh, Santa Rosa, California, Officer G has got you uh, hooked up. And he's looking, looking a little bit older, still looking angry and apoplectic. But, you know, what do you expect? Um, so what was the moral of this story? I guess looking back, one of the takeaways I have is that it probably wasn't the best idea that a couple of 16-year-olds and a 15-year-old were rolling around completely unattended in a Buick. Not that we even needed someone attending us, but just that no one knew where we were. No one knew what we were doing. And I realize that with folks of my vintage and a little bit older, there's often a lot of romanticizing about how great it was that our childhood was so feral, so unattended. We could do whatever we wanted. No one cared. Nowadays, they're helicopter parenting. And yes, I generally know like what my kids are doing, but it's not in the sense of helicopter parenting. It's more that we actually have a relationship. You know, it's like I'll check in with them. And, and it's, I certainly am not with them 24-7. They walk downtown by themselves. They do their own thing. But I generally know where they are. And it's not even about knowing where someone is to police them or to ward off danger. But it's just, again, it's like a relational thing. It's actually like showing that you care about the person. You care what they're doing. And I feel like there was a lot of um, lack of care by adults when we were younger. Not not always. I mean, you know, there's, everything's different. There's, there's the push-pull, give-take here and there. But I just feel there, there was something strange about an 80s and 90s childhood when you're just thrown to the wolves, and sure, it'll toughen you up, and look how great I turned out. But there's just a lot of needless stuff that probably could have been excised and skipped over, like getting quasi-arrested on federal mail theft charges. I will read one um, quote from, a, 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 I believe it was the director of the recent horror movie, uh, reviewed by IC Robots on his At The Movies show, 
Check that out when you have a chance. But um, this was someone involved in the film The Black Phone. And I don't really care so much about the film, but I found it interesting what he had to say here, and it reminded me a bit of our uh, teenage hooliganism story. And I, I will read this to you here very briefly, and then we will close out for the week. So yes, this comes from Scott Derrickson, who was the director of uh, The Black Phone. Um, and he says... Um, it wasn't until, oh, he doesn't say this, this is the article, but it, it wasn't until nearly a decade later that Derrickson realized he could use his own middle school experience growing up in Denver, Colorado in the late 1970s to expand the 30-page story into a full-length feature. You're talking about the original uh, Stephen King's son's short story that the movie was based on. The youngest of the 13 boys that lived on his block growing up, Derrickson recalls omnipresent violence. The bullying was constant, he said, but I didn't have it the worst. He remembers a friend of his showing up to play with, quote, red bleeding welts on the back of his legs. The boy's dad had whipped him with an extension cord. We were like, wow, dude, bummer, you know? Then we went and played Nerf football. That was just the neighborhood. That was just how it was. Now, my aside, this is the kind of thing where a lot of people I know think that that was some great formative thing, that we saw each other getting abused, beaten, some great character-building thing. Interestingly, many of the people I know that think that way are kind of like a mess, <laughs> but neither here nor there. Um, and I will just say, as an aside, too, some of the ancillary characters in the story, not the main characters in my story, uh, you know, the J2 had a lot of this going on in his life, which may explain some of his bizarre behavior. Uh, but anyway, while the black phone deals with the trauma of childhood, Derek Singh knew he didn't want to go too far with the violence. Quote, there were things in my childhood that were too dark to put in, he says. I think if you have to have a sensitivity of what an audience can tolerate without really being turned off or turning on the film itself. Um, having the audience turn off or turning against the film itself. Uh, he wanted to show the resilience of, resiliency of children, and children are resilient, true, by confronting some of the real horrors of his own adolescence through his young characters. Quote, for me, making these movies is always a cathartic experience. It's always a way of dispelling anxiety and fear, never creating it. Um, he goes on to say that uh, in bringing a 1970s-era story to the screen... He was fighting against any urge to fetishize the era. Quote, Bob Dylan said, nostalgia is death, and I tend to agree with that. Instead, he put what he calls a, he pulled what he calls a, quote, reverse Amblin with a supernatural horror movie, referring to the production company founded by Steven Spielberg. Quote, I grew up on those Spielberg movies, but his way of looking back at pre-adolescence is just very different from, from anything I would do. He goes on to say, it's really valuable to go back and take a look at things that you have probably denied about your own experience and how they impacted you. It was very freeing and very cathartic to then be able to channel that into something positive. In the sense that the film shows the kid, despite being neglected, despite being abducted, you know, swinging for the fences and uh, standing up for himself, uh, which is great. Um, but I, I do, I do share some of what he says here, and it's not that there's. I don't believe nostalgia's death, and I don't believe there weren't great things in the seventies, eighties, nineties. Great things in my own childhood, but you know, there's good and bad in everything, and we can learn from things. We can learn from history, and I just think, you know, there's all kinds of other stuff in my childhood, but this one little sliver, this one strange tale. Why was I behaving this way? Why was I allowed to behave this way? Why was I just sort of like crying out for some kind of attention? Um, and I know you're not, you're not supposed to be a millennial that needs attention. You're supposed to take your whipping and love it and, and, and go on to be a damaged person yourself and damage other people. But I do think there's some balance that can be had. And, I, and I, I've hoped to have brought some balance into my own life with my own children. We'll see. I'm sure they'll all be in therapy 
uh, due to all the ways that I've traumatized them. But I, I thought it was interesting that just as I was sitting down to record this story, just as I was sitting down to share this anecdote, and I wasn't really thinking of it in this context, I happened to notice this little blurb about uh, what this director thought about horrific 70s and 80s childhoods. Um, and again, not that they're all bad, but there's a lot of weird stuff going on back then that I just don't see happening with my kids and their friends now. And some of that is probably for the not as good, and some of it is for the better. With that, I will stop rambling. We have gone way, way long, but I wanted to get this gone, get this off the chest. We'll talk about the dig aspect at some later date, because it's kind of funny that it correlates with other ISR stuff. But for now, until next week, it is me. It is me. It is Mr. Sensational, Gino V, signing off.